Thanks to Crime Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, just my good friend, uh, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Close enough. I'll take that. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Thanks for uh, <laughs> for sticking with it. Thanks for coming back. Hey, can, uh, I, can I just throw in, because uh, we should do a little clapperboard, take two. Um, Scott, it is take two, yeah. which is what threw me there. Can I, because can I just tell you, listeners, absolute comedic and um, opinionated gold um, left on the cutting room floor, or chewed up into the ether. It's out there in the in the internets somewhere. But Skype ate something. I don't want to, you know, blow too much sunshine up at each other's skirt. But some of our best uh, work for yesterday's intro just just gone. Yeah, there was a technical glitch uh, that meant the recording didn't say it wasn't my fault this time. I didn't sort of forget to start the recorder. Um, but so, yeah, so hopefully we can capture the same spontaneity that we uh, captured yesterday, Pete. That's right. Talking about the Let, same let's, topic. Let's give it a crack. Let's uh, roll on. We've got a bit um, to get through. Now, we, we, we do, first of all, and cue the theme song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Pete, tell us about Gabs Auckland. Everything was awesome, Matt. Uh, no, actually, no, look, uh, it, it, just on a serious note, uh, yeah, very disappointing. Um, look, as close to a disaster um, as you could possibly get are, um, are a couple of phrases that um, are completely not relevant to Gabs Auckland. It was it was really, really good. And, that, and, that's, not, and that's not being, you know, look, it, it, well, it, it, Auckland um, has had a little bit of a history in the past with some uh, beer events that have not gone over too well. And the guys from... Um, in terms of the state of the people leaving? Yeah, yeah. Just the, just the, yeah, just some gen, just general issues around um, around behaviour and, and that sort of thing. And um, so there was a, a quite a high level of scrutiny and compliance, which um, the Tap House guys who run uh, Gabs Auckland were... Um, uh, I, you know, very keen to to tick all the boxes, and um, to their credit, uh, and I'll post a, an article which which sums it up much better than me from a from some local guys, um, local media over there who um, who basically you know sang its praises. Uh, I think Auckland and um, or New Zealand in general, between the Dunedin Beer Festival, Beervana, and now Gabs Auckland, um, no matter which end, end, middle, or the bottom of the country that you're um, residing in. You've, you've got a good beer festival to go to. And it's great to hear that because it, it's some, uh, one of those drums that I bang a lot about, you know, the perception of beer and as participants in the beer community, we have a role in shaping that perception of beer. And when you see a festival like that that goes through, and Steve and Guy are right on top of that. They are, are finely attuned to their role in, you know, creating and shaping that perception. And when you have a great festival like that, the discussion afterwards is about beer. When you have a bad festival, you have a, a discussion about hooliganism and drunkenness and the ills of alcohol. Um, and, and you know, great to see that they are pushing, you know, keeping that perception moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And look, to put it in perspective, I think you know, point zero three percent, you know, eviction rate. Um, you know, one guy was asked to leave in the first session, and uh, one who was in a group of four or five, I think, in the in the second session, um, which really, uh, in the overall scheme of things, not too bad at all. Um, kudos to the beer lovers of Auckland, and I must say, it was a very, 
if I can compare, you know, the, the Sydney Gabs demographic to the Melbourne Gabs demographic, it was closer to Melbourne in terms of a, a broader range of ages. Um, lots of, you know, couples, uh, you know, mates, you know, 20s to 30s kind of thing, you know, um, twos and threes, lots of groups of girls. There was a, a, a hockey team there, including their manager, who were playing team Jenga. It wasn't a cut, you know, like they were, it was almost <laughs> like a little team building exercise. It was, it was really great. They do a great job of uh, making it very inclusive, don't they? Now, how about the venue, Prof? Because uh, uh, Bivana, which is a fantastic event, um, you know, they've got so much of it right, but they're limited in Wellington in terms of venues to put it yeah, in. And, uh, yep, you know, yeah. we, we have discussed in the past that that stadium just makes it a little bit hard, whereas the Melbourne, uh, the, the Royal Exhibition Building in Melbourne is just built for a fantastic beer festival. Where did the um, Auckland venue sit on that uh, spectrum? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, about the same floor plan as um, Carriage Works in Sydney, uh, the um, technolo technology park there. Um, so... Uh, rectangular rather than square but basically a big concrete box which uh once the house lights went down and the gab's lights went up and the um you know the, the festival lanterns and all that sort of thing um and some really good strategic um you know spot lighting and wash lighting and um and mood lighting and that sort of thing uh you wouldn't have known that it was a, a great big concrete shed awesome yeah so awesome. they, they, oh, that's, they that's actually great. did really well with that and it shows well, that the Gab's vibe is just, you know, like I think it's proof of concept in terms of you don't need the, uh, I guess, the the charm of the building necessarily. Um, that that almost becomes another roving entertainer or another, um, you know, big screen or another, um, you know, seminar. It's another element of the, uh, the festival, but it certainly proves that you don't need to rely on the venue. And we did talk to Stephen Guy flew a lot of their trusted entertainers over um, to... Yeah, there was... A, and, and look, shout out to all the guys because it, there's a... Behind the scenes, there's a, a build crew who are basically responsible for, you know, getting all the pieces in place. Then you've got all the, the beer crew. And then you've got, if you like, you know, the, um, the entertainment side of things. Uh, and the fact that on this occasion we were all able to all fly together, all stay together, uh, and then afterwards all collapse in a heap and drink together... Um, it was just a real sort of collegiate feel or, um, you know, as close as you can get to carny folk, you know, um, <laughs> maintaining your dental structure. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. Although we, we might move on. Um, you penned a great piece uh, this week um, that went up this week that I'll link to in the show notes. Is beer quality enough to ensure a healthy industry? Mate, tell us a little bit about your thinking behind that article. Yeah, thanks for the praise. Um, it was, I guess, inspired in part by a couple of conversations and then really galvanised by the piece that I uh, referred to on a blog called Beer Simple. Um, we, we've discussed in the past about what happens, you know, down the track. And I know, you know, I've been accused of, of walking funny, but I don't have crystal balls. But when it uh, comes to sort of, I guess, looking into the future, I wanted to take a bit of a critical look at, is it really just going to be about who's got the cheapest beer or who's got the best beer? Is there that kind of, um, oh, what's the word, Matt? Um, you know, that certain something, the uh, the X factor, if you like, I guess, um, that some breweries... Je ne sais quoi, I think, is the word you're seeking. Yeah, oh. I don't know what. Um, it might be that. Yeah. Do you see what I did there? Je ne sais quoi. I don't know what. Anyway, um <laughs> so, there you go. I didn't know what Shinnesaqua meant. I thought it meant that little something. <laughs> no, I don't know what. Uh, anyway, um, 
So, language lessons brought to you by Pete Mitchum. <laughs> Welcome to Coffee Break French with Matt and Pete. Um, yeah, it, 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 I, I think it's it's worth looking at, and the the reaction that I've got both um, you know privately and and uh, through the comments and that sort of thing, um, it seems to have, I guess, maybe touched a bit of a not not touched a nerve, but it's it's made people think, yeah, actually, yeah, perhaps. We do need to, I guess, look at, and my concern, and we've discussed this before, I think, Matt, that I think we have a great, we've got no drama, drama at all with supply. I, I'm not convinced that demand in Australia is, at the moment, keeping pace with, the, with the, the, the amount of beer that's coming out onto the scene and the number of new breweries that are opening up. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, this is one that I would really recommend. You reference Beer Simple, and it's a great post called Dead Brewer Walking, Why Many Good Breweries Won't Survive a Craft Bubble Collapse. Um, and to all the Muppets that love to snarkily write TLDR, which too long didn't read for those who aren't kiddies um, out there, um, I would highly recommend you read both of them, um, Pete's piece and the original piece that he references, um, because I think piece actually has to have some thought in it, and uh, that takes a little bit of space. So uh, go and read the whole thing. But uh, back to your point, Prof, it, spot on. I think we've got a long way to go in terms of craft, the, the demand for this thing that we call craft beer um, to grow. And whilst there's a lot of talk about craft beer bubbles, um, I don't think there'll be a craft beer bubble, but certainly there'll be a craft brewery bubble um, at some point. You know, e economics and demand and the changes of, um, you know, tastes and what makes a good brewery is, is all going to influence which breweries survive. And just because you've got a great little brewery, um, once that excitement wears off, um, well, once the current excitement about the new and the novel wears off, as it does in every area of life, um, you know, that sort of just latent force of gravity and w whether that gravity is availability or consistency or demand. And if people stop willing, stop going into pubs, willing to pay an extra, you know, dollar or two for a very cool hip Sydney uh, brewery that has to incur, you know, makes a $350 keg as opposed to a $280 keg. Um, and so the, the bar owners stop going to that effort to get it in, um, which means that there's a you know, smaller market for that brewery to operate in. All of these things um, contribute to the market forces that breweries are going to face. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that um, if we're not careful, um, we, we could lose some breweries that are making really good, consistent um wonderful beer just because times change and i think that'll be a real sad thing yeah and i think yeah there'll be a number of factors will all sort of collide to to uh, determine who survives and and perhaps who doesn't i don't think it's going to be any any one particular element and that was i guess the the gist of my of my piece it, it interestingly enough uh, the piece that you referred to uh, from beer simple makes a very interesting point and it talks about beer geeks and the cockroach breweries and uh, it was saying that you know making good beer isn't always enough because there are a lot of breweries that are for whatever reason perceived as being hip and cool and much beloved by beer geeks and sometimes their beer isn't very good but because they have a very strong local presence um, they can survive when other arguably better breweries uh, may fold um, and, and I thought that was a very interesting perspective but uh, we'll, we'll let uh, listeners go to that it's in the show notes um, and you know, highly recommend your piece and uh, the piece that you reference thanks uh, what's next mate uh, moving on just a little thing um, that came up uh, uh, the wobbly thong um, Alistair Robbie from the post Alistair program Robbie. good friend of the program 
and a good friend of Beer Everywhere, um, tweeted, he retweeted uh, something that he was tagged in that was a link to the, an AFR, Australian Financial Review, article about the ACCC looking into tap contracts. Um, and as happens uh, <laughs> online, uh, it got a little bit hijacked because the person that had commented, who had, re- who had tweeted originally that Alice retweeted, made the mistake of referring to craft beer as boutique beer. And uh, Crafty Pint weighed in and sort of said, how about we stop calling calling it boutique beer first? Um, and then I <laughs> just sort of tipped, what's the issue with calling it boutique? Boutique means this. Um, so there was a bit of, so <laughs> in the end, the whole point of the article, and apologies to um, Alistair for hijacking it, um, went away from the very important issue of the ACCC to the very unimportant issue of is boutique a fair description for craft beer? Um, Prof, do you have any... Yeah, I think it shows how we've grown. Uh, when I first, I guess, you know, got into this thing called beer, um, there was it was just big breweries that, and they were kind of, you know, faceless. It wasn't, you know, um, in the way that wine was, you know, Peter Lehman or Andrew Garrett or Cyril Henschke. It was like, you know, the maker was, was, was as much a part of the brand, you know, beer was either, you know, it, it was a brand name. It wasn't, it wasn't from the brewer. And then when, uh, craft came along, uh, and in my well, early even days, before craft, there was micro, well, yeah, it was micro and, you know, what bloke, you know, fairly wants to be associated with anything micro. Um, and then boutique, you know, well, it's kind of like where fat ladies buy their dresses, and I think we kind of. It, uh, that's Pete Mitchum at BruceNews.com.au if anyone. <laughs> and, and look, I'm an equal, equal opportunity offender too. So that's you know people who wear dresses, um, women and fat people. So um, I'll cover them all. Um, the I, I think the the issue that we had, and that we, and up until recently we still have had, is that we've tried to define craft by what it isn't rather than by standing up proudly and confidently and saying what it is. So, And I think a lot of people who you know coming into it, whether it's handcrafted or artisanal or boutique, nano, micro or craft, um, we, all know, we all know what we mean. And that the yeah, lexicon will sort itself out. Boutiques just seems to be one of those words um, that inspires, and I, I see it regularly, um, People, particularly beer writers or yep. people who are sort of immersed in the industry, it, it's one word that when it's used, always gets smacked. And I, I, I honestly can't understand it. You know, back in the 90s, it was just the common description for a, a small brewery. But you always, um, you always had that one peanut, you know, like in, in live conversation, there's always one bloke who'll pronounce it boutique. Boutique. And everyone yes. just kind of looks at him with, you know, cock the eyebrow. And, and they've ruined it for I'll everyone. let you get away with boutique, but let's not, you know piss around the edges too much and sometimes there are uh you know when i've been writing that it is the perfect word because it means small and you know um you know it means small and crafted and yeah in in the same way artisanal has a bit more of that you know um again it's it's rustic element whereas boutique doesn't have that connotation of being rustic it's it's non-industrial it's non you know sort of commercial it's non um you know massive size it's you know it's all it's all about what it's what it's not at the end of the day more is it too much of a good thing a bad thing yeah. No. Anyway, I think we've discussed boutique enough. Prof. That's it, mate. Keeping it snappy, snappy, snappy. How, how's this? Yeah, no, you're doing well, mate. One eight hundred. How's my hosting? They're, um, they're going to be struggling to keep up. They're going. Hang on, I was going to go back, go back. <laughs> I need closure on this uh, anecdote. Uh, well, boutique, perfectly fine if you want to use it, yeah. but not probably don't use it in the uh, cool bars um, without risk of a fight. That's right. 
now, this one is a link. It was in a site called Oz Food News. I noticed that they, we didn't get this media release, uh, Prof. Um, but apparently, SodaStream are bringing out a home tap system. Um, and I'll just... So you, you'd be uh, well... I've got a SodaStream. I've never, yes. I've never thought to put beer in it. No, as 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 my daughter. Actually, it probably wouldn't be a bad way to sort of just revitalise a beer or... A, but anyway, um, SodaStream is launching a homemade beer system called the Beer Bar. The Beer Bar will allow consumers to make beer at home using sparkling water and a beer concentrate made by SodaStream. SodaStream has so far only revealed one of the beer users will be able to make a light beer called Blondie. Blondie contains 4.5% alcohol and one litre of its concentrate can create approximately three litres of beer. So essentially, but it's, it's a high gravity. <laughs> it's beer cordial, it Beer cordial, yeah, beer cordial. Well, either that or it's um, a very clever system for taking real ale or cask ale and turning it into fizzy lager. <laughs> Camera, yeah. Camera should be all over this. We want this well, banned. The, uh, the business yeah. world seems to have really identified a love of home keg beer and none of them have so far been able to pull it, pull it off. Um, we, we've seen Tap King, which was a 60 million, or, you know, yeah, depending on who you speak to, 60 million plus um, investment in home tap beer. Didn't go anywhere. We've seen the Ikega, which again is is an awesome system. Um, And I love the idea of it. I love having well carbonated beer. But at the the end of the day, as our um, absent producer, Lockie, um, wrote in his review, the squeeze has to be worth the juice. Um, Is the squeezing the lemon worth the juice you get? And with the Ikega, I've just found that it hasn't. That said, the vessel itself is beautiful for keeping your beer cold if you are going to a picnic or something like that um but they just the tap attachment not prof I, I can't see this going anywhere no nah, i think let's bury it now but, good, so, good, but it does good luck to them i like the, I, I did like the way you referred to it as high gravity is it you know like is it do you you kind of are you intimating that it's it's similar to perhaps some of the um scientifically very innovative techniques that some of the large brewers use to to produce beer by basically making a you know a seven story fermenter worth of um of nine percent beer and then watering it down as it's bottled well this is obviously i mean my understanding is that high gravity brewing is generally brewing to you know between seven and eight percent um so so you brew the beer stronger than bottling strength and then you add um you know water well it's very efficient because you're um, using that space to make a lot more beer you've just got to dilute it at the other end and if you want a like a 30 dollar carton of beer or 35 dollar carton of beer that's how you're going to do it and that's what the um uh, you know, haters like to say, you know, it's watering down your beer. When you speak to the brewers who are the technical um, guys behind it and generally working for the big breweries, um, they like to point out that when you brew at high gravity, you capture a lot more of the flavour and esters um, from the fermentation. So when you are, particularly when you're brewing low alcohol beers, um, in, in that way, you capture more flavour um, and it's a more flavoursome product. So pluses and minuses. But this does seem to be the logical um, thing. Well, you know, why add the water and the when you can CO2 do that at, home. at the brewery <laughs> when you can do it at home and have the fun of doing it? Project for the kiddies. Um, Prof, uh, are you willing to make a call? Is this going to be the Father's Day hit of 2016 and 2017? Did this go through Shark Tank or Dragon's Den or anything? Because I'm out. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't see it going anywhere. Uh, let's see if I can find a crushed can sound prop so we can uh, 
shit can the beer bar. Ah, now, Prof, uh, you've, we're going to do a Prof's pot shot, but do you want to speak to our guest today? Yeah, let's get that out. I'm oh, not get it out of the way, but no, because it's um, look a, a really cracking listen today. Um, a, a guy that we've been trying to get on for quite a while, and um, our the planets are finally aligned, and his calendar matched with ours, and um, we're going to be speaking to Warren Pawsey, who's the head judge of the Australian International Beer Awards, uh, into his third year of a third year contract, a three year contract, and. Um, also, the head brewer at Little Creatures down at Geelong. Down at Geelong, a fantastic guy. And uh, we'll, we'll let Warren introduce himself. Warren Pawsey, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thank you very much. Mate, there is so much. We, you're a very hard man to uh, to track down, and we've been trying to get you for a while, but that's because in addition to that's being a head you're calling me. <laughs> well, you, you gave us the wrong number. <laughs> that doesn't make it hard to track you down. But... Uh, the, um, in addition to being the head brewer at Little Creatures that is going through a big expansion, you're also the head judge for the Australian International Beer Award, and you have been for some time, and we've just gone through award season. Mm. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, your role with the Australian International Beer Awards. Sure. So the um, role of the head judge for uh, Australian International Beer Awards is not to actually judge beer, but to select the judges um, and to put the panels together. Uh, that I don't that the head judge doesn't select a tasting order or or any of the categories. It's really just around getting the judging tables together and getting them judging beers that they've that, that they've asked could they please judge. Uh, so it's very much a, a an office job um, and really looking a lot at the personalities on the table and what beer they're they're what categories they're judging because it. Judges are a diverse group. There's not a, there's not one type of judge. And and how do judges differ? There are different judges have different specialties or different uh, styles that they uh, are particularly adept at. Every everyone tastes beer differently, and everyone has a different approach. So there's no one right or wrong answer. Uh, some some beer judges we're selected because they're highly trained in sensory so if you work at a larger brewery you get uh, opportunity to learn sensory which is really connecting uh, the words in your brain with with what's um, what's in front of you uh, and it's it's a little bit focused on uh, defect finding uh, rather than the, the adherence to style if you like then there are other judges who are um, very good brewers who have uh, obviously, if they can make very good beer, they've got they've got something connected there where they've got the balance of the beer right and all of the ingredients are harmonious. Um, there's a lot of people who want to be judges who have a, a, an opinion, and we try and mix that all up. Uh, it's dynamic. The judging um, the judging lineup changes every year. We've got the the, the year we just had. We had a lot of um, a lot of newer people coming into judging and uh, we try and so I was trying to get the tables aligned where you had an experienced uh, brewer or beer judge on the same table as well as a, a technical sensory trained person. There's a lot of misconceptions about what awards are and what they mean. And uh, you know, one of my favourites is when somebody, uh, when you sort of start tweeting the results for the AIBAs and you see the social media um, storm, oh, that didn't deserve gold or that yeah, didn't deserve da, 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 such da. and such. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how, what, it, what is the process for judging? Um, and, you know, whether a, I, I've made a beer, I think it is cracking, I don't taste any faults in it, I've entered it into the, um, uh, say, the Australian pale ale category. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what's the process that the judges go through? You know, for, for example, what if I've made a, uh, just to throw a beer out there, a, a beer like Little Creatures, and I've entered it in the Australian um, pale ale category? How well would my beer go, assuming that it was fault-free? Uh, that, that is going to depend on the, the judging panel makeup, but it ought to do... So we, we use the style guidelines, I guess taking a step backwards, the beer is presented as a, in a wine glass with a number um, and the judges all get it and they get time to assess the beer for it, using a point system uh, by its appearance and by its aromas and by its flavour and then they're judging it to a, to a category which is a guideline. So there's a number of categories and subcategories for them so that we're comparing apples with apples um, and the, they're around the physical parameters of the beer so what's the the hoppy aroma or the hoppy flavour or the maltiness. And then there's numbers as well, which sort of give the judges an idea in their head of what, uh, uh, that they, that what they should be looking for. Um, there is some criticism around about, uh, about using guidelines and being a, a, a guidelines stylistic Nazi, but most of the judges just take it as a, as a guide. Um, so if, for example, you had, in, as you said, you've entered Little Creatures Pale Ale and you put it in a, um, an Imperial uh, IPA or uh, double IPA category, you, the, the style guideline would tell you that there wasn't enough aggressive hop flavour and aroma and, and bitterness. So it would get points detracted from it, regardless of it being a really good beer. So it's, it's really important that the, the entrants put, read, really read the category um, and read the words before they enter the beer rather than going on, well, this is a pale ale, it must go in pale ale. Um, if you look at the, um, for example, Little Creatures Pale Ale IPA, if you look at the guidelines for America, if you were going to put that in the World Beer Cup, you would probably do better as a strong pale ale than it would as an IPA because it's just reading the American guidelines, it just doesn't have enough. So, and so, so, I had... The, the, the guidelines are really how well a beer is made and then how it applies to the style guidelines in the competition. The style guidelines are for the judges to know, all right, in this flight of beers, I'm looking at pale ales and they're going to be this level. This is the sort of, use the words and use the numbers. This is what they should be representing. And it's to take away your personal bias. Um, the quality, that's just assessed as next to it. If it's no good, it doesn't matter what category it's in, it's going to be no good quite often we will have a beer that hasn't been entered in the right category and it's a cracking beer but it's just not it's not in the right slot so it might if it was in the right put in the right uh and if i go back to the ipa uh, example if it is in the right uh category then it will be a gold medal beer because it's fantastic but if you look at it and it doesn't have aggressive hops or it doesn't have you know over the top hop character then you're not going to get a gold medal for it. You'll probably come a few points off and be a silver. And Warren, we should point out too that um, as well as the number system, there's also uh, an opportunity for um, free and easy and, and sometimes quite robust discussion uh, about the beers amongst the judges 
before the, uh, I guess, the, the votes are tallied. And so, uh, in yeah. most cases, I think it's probably fair to say that um, six out of the six judges will be clumped around, a, a, you know, a, a very sort of similar opinion. It's um, yeah. it's rare that you get um, the table split, for example, three giving it a gold and three not meddling at all. It, it's normally a, uh, a little bit closer than that. But there is a, a great opportunity for, I guess, um, and this is where, for me as an associate judge and as a non um, sensory and a non-technical um, and a non-brewing person um, coming in as, a, I guess, the, the, the palate of the consumer. Um, there's just so much to learn. And I think my opinion is fairly valid as well because if a beer overall is fairly drinkable, sometimes you can get a little bit caught up in the, the technicalities of, 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 like you say, fault detection um, and miss <laughs> the fact that actually it's, it's still a pretty good beer. Mm. So there's some bias too there, Pete. I agree with everything you've said. I, I didn't get to that part about after we've taken the scores. We all have a very good very good discussion and often it is robust, but it's never it's never one person dominating or it shouldn't be. We're trying to get a discussion going uh, to, to get rid of the bias that some people carry. Um, many judges think that they know, well, no, I shouldn't say, some judges think they know what a beer is when they're trying it. Um, you, when you are judging, you'll never judge your own beer in, your, in the AIBA, um, uh, but they still, some judges would think that they know what the beer is and they can carry that bias. Or if they, if they don't know the beer or they don't think they know what the beer is, they, they have a personal preference. So that's when that discussion of the six judges really sorts the, the personal preference out. And as Pete said, there is a, it's a great time to learn about how you assess beers and what other people are seeing in beers. It's a, a, I, I love judging for that reason alone. I actually find uh, judging is a very humbling experience. The, the, the limited amount that I've done, any time I've thought, oh, I know what this beer is, I've inevitably been wrong. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, blind tasting any beer and uh, a, a, approaching it, is, it really is an eye-opener, for which mm. is... And I think that contradiction in terms. The, the social media part that you talked about at the start where people, how could that win? Because they've, they've got a bias because they're looking at the label. They're not assessing the beer um, in, a, in an environment that's controlled. Um, so they're letting their bias uh, swing them. Oh, no, no I never, I'd never drink that beer. That's commercial. Uh, so we, I get surprised every time the awards are read out. And, and, and conversely, is it true that you know, when people say, how did this not win, it's because perhaps some beers in the marketplace have a fair amount of hype behind them and you're, people are predisposed to them for a range of reasons, um, or that they, they've still been a very good beer, but maybe they've not quite fitted the style that it's been entered into? Yes, correct. Or, um, or there's a better beer on the day. Uh, but yes, usually stylistically, if they're... If someone's selling a lot of beer in the marketplace, they're not going to have a technical problem um, with the beer because if you're selling that much, you can't be, you can't sell that much rubbish. So technically, it'll be good. So it might be doesn't fit the wasn't entered in the correct category, or uh, there was just some really good beers on the day. Do you find that the Australian International Beer Awards is a truly international competition where we get a lot of beers sent from overseas, but we also have a lot of judges who are invited to judge mm -hmm. um, down here. Do you find that the style expectations for judges from different countries vary? Yes, they do. We had um, we had an uh, American judge this year, but he's quite well travelled. So, um, but the, when we select our internationals, we're, we're they're, they're usually um, pretty pretty good beer judges so they'll read the guideline 
read the guidelines first. Um, but no, no, I think I think a lot of international judges normally wouldn't be a dominant person to be pounding the table saying this isn't this can't be right. You know, how can you not be giving this beer a gold medal? We don't we haven't had that for years. Did you ever get a situation, particularly some of the classic beer styles, um, you know, beers from Germany or Belgium that for a long time were um, only available in Belgium or Germany and with the growth of the small brewery movement, um, we, we've seen a lot of wheat beers made and a, a lot of the craft wheat beers tend to be a little bit exaggerating some of those banana and clove characteristics over some of the traditional styles. Do you find that people who have grown up or been immersed in a craft culture um, have slightly skewed views of what some of the traditional styles should be? I can't. Oh, I can't say that I could generalise that much, Matt. I think styles evolve. People have an interpretation of a style, and if it's appealing, um, your example there for vice beer, you know, banana clove bombs. Um, I've had them in Germany, and they're not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, I think. Uh, I think the, the important part is that people have a, you know, craft brewers try a style and think I'm going to put my own twist on that um, and if it works and you sell lots of beer good on you if you've got people that really love it that's a fantastic thing diversity is great do we see a, do, do we see a gradual evolution of beer styles for example oh. it was interesting that a couple uh, a couple of years ago that there was no gold medal winner for the Australian pale ale category and mm. uh, there was some discussion at the time as to whether or not uh, since the advent of beers like the Stonewood Pacific Ale that have, you know, there or thereabouts in stylistic terms, but then have that sort of uh, very hop uh, aromatic hop character. Yeah. Um, yeah, that the traditional Australian pale ale didn't, that brewers mm. were starting to uh, skew their Australian-style pale ales um, mm. in, in that regard. Is that something that's providing constant pressure on style development? It, it's all in the name, I think, Matt. Um, if you if you make a pale coloured beer and call it a pale ale and you're in Australia, then you can pretty much call it an Australian pale ale. It's when we get to judging that we have to get, um, we have to start putting some descriptors around it. Because as you said earlier, you know, 30 years ago, pale ale was, was very yeasty um, and very fruity esters, but didn't have a whole lot of hop character. Um, so as we, as the market explores different types of beer, putting it into a bucket and um, to enter it into a competition, that's when we have to use the, the style guideline. Um, and they can be very, they, they need to be updated regularly because when they're a catch-all, international style paleo was the catch-all before, um, could have this or not, could have, could be made with this or not. Um, so I think what we're really, what we did with the Australian style pale ale and the and the New World pale ale was to put some keywords in there that described it without alienating um, people or other beers that were already in that market, calling themselves um, that brand. Um, the New World pale ale in particular was really a response to um, almost discrimination against uh, other hops. It was a, a international pale ale was a catch-all for beers that didn't have US or English or Australian hops in them. So it was everything else, but it could also have had uh, adjunct in it and it could have had, uh, you know, pretty low flavors, everything else. So we, we 
wanted to tune the New World Pale Ale up a little bit so that we specifically called out for hop flavours other than the what you see around. So there was a lot of really good beers with unusual hop characters that weren't getting medals because they weren't, well, it doesn't fit the guideline for international style pale ale for that or other reasons. So yes, they do evolve. And, and, and then there's a whole lot of beer styles that we see at the moment that don't seem to have a cleared definition and you know, for example the golden ale um yeah. or, or the kirsch style the uh, australian interpretation of the kirsch yeah. are beers that we we see a lot of um commercial examples of them but yeah. there is no style description around it do do, do does the uh, sort of the, the preponderance of beers like a golden ale eventually lead to the creation of a you know australian golden ale style or a golden ale style in the judging so I think um, I, I think you said it then. The, the the style guideline is for judging. It's not for the marketplace. If if you put something out and say it's a black Kolsch, um because it's dark, people the public will probably you know have a go at it because it's a, you're you're showing some diversity around a traditional style. Um, but when you went to enter it into a competition or judge it, it's going to be very difficult to do because it's a smashing together of a couple of styles. So I think it, it, the marketplace is uh, much more forgiving than in, than in judging. Judging, you have to have the... You, you, well, we choose to use guidelines. You don't have to, but we choose to use them to make it easier on the judges. Otherwise, uh, you'd be just relying on the subjectivity of the judges and, the, and some of the more dominant personalities would probably rise to the fore and it wouldn't be a six judges anymore. It'd be one. At putting your brewer's hat on for a second, though, um, as, as a brewer, uh, I would imagine that you would want to put a um, clearly understood style description on, on your bottle so as to not um, upset a, a person who buys a golden ale um, mm. and ends up with something that's closer to an IPA than a... Um, a, a Imperial. A Imperial Gold Nail. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and that's where little, you know, epithets like uh, Imperial Golden Nail gives mm. lets you brew a, a Golden Nail, but people know that, well, people with a, a, a certain level of interest will be aware that that's a, a much bigger example or an Imperial Pilsner will yeah. be a much bigger example. Um, yeah. so, so there are nomenclatures that seem to have evolved. But as a brewer, is it important to put a fairly clearly understood um, description on, 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 on your beer? It is, but that's quite a traditional view that, uh, that the craft movement has been pu pulling apart. Um, you know, traditionally, beers were brewed in areas and regions, and the, and the region that had a good beer, people might copy it. Um, you know, Vienna Lager or, or, or Oktoberfest beer or... or but those, a lot of those beer styles aren't around you know, a couple of generations later. I think it's constantly evolving. I think what Kraft is doing is stripping that, but it must be like this, into, well, what if I try that with that? And, and the drinking public in the last decade are up, up to try that. When I started brewing you know, more than 25 years ago, I couldn't give away beer that wasn't mainstream commercial. Um, so the, the public want to try different things. I d I'm not personally in favour of locking beers into boxes and saying, if I'm making a Kolsch beer, then it must be it must be traditional and I must use German malts and I must use German hops and this is where it's all at. But it should... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and I'm 
probably giving my own view here, but shouldn't it be within it, that if you see Kolsch on a on a bottle, shouldn't you have a reasonable expectation, not that it'll taste exactly a certain way, but that it will be within a certain range of uh, parameters? It depends what other words you've got on the back label. Um, if you know, the brewer decides that they're going to make a, this is my interpretation of a Kolsch and it's got crystal mould in it and I've used Galaxy and it's got a BU of 40. Uh, as long as the buyer knows that that's what they're getting, it might be a fair way away. It won't be Fru or, or one of the Cologne beers. Uh, I, I think that's, well, you know, as long as, as long as it's clear on the, on the packaging that that's what you're getting. Um, I think... I think people are starting, brewers are starting to move away from uh, the traditional labels so much, inspired by I've seen um, or or related to. <laughs> um, it, it, the craft movement such a such a, a, a thing for moving bending styles, smashing them together. There's, a, there's another element too, Matt, that's probably worth um, throwing in at this point based on, uh, I guess, within the um, you know guidelines of, of judging. And that is that in every flight in every, or in every, uh, you know, section, so we don't use the IPA example again, um, there's always one beer in every session that everyone agrees would have been at one point a really, really good beer and possibly gold-worthy or metal-worthy. But the example that has been sent for whatever reason, whether it's a, a packaging fault, um, a, an age fault, uh, the distributor has sent through some old stock, whatever it might be, um, that comes through uh, a, a, as just a tired example of what was once probably a really good beer. Um, and it, again, it sits in well within the guidelines, but it's just a, it, it, it I guess, shows that um, today we're much more attuned to picking those sorts of faults. And, and I guess conversely, and you and I have discussed at length, Prof, that sometimes you get beers that, you know, are crackingly good examples, but have just been entered in the wrong category. And if they'd been entered in perhaps a different category, they may well have done much better than they ultimately did. Yeah, for sure. Mm. So, so we're moving away from style for a second, when a brewer is, uh, receives a gold medal at the Australian International Beer Awards or a silver or a bronze, can they? Can it be said that they won a gold medal, or is it just uh, more a benchmarking that you know uh, a, a beer that's of a certain merchantable quality um, will is automatically entitled to a bronze medal? Um, and you know, if if it's that little bit better and it's a a, a gr good example, um, and then if it's an ex an excellent example, it, it gets a gold medal. Or did you actually win a gold medal? So. Uh... I think the medals, for me, philosophically, for me, the medals are around celebrating the diversity of, of beer, um, not any one mainstream or, or craft. If you've got a good beer and it, you're, you win a gold, silver or a bronze medal at the AOBA, when you go out, you ought to be pretty much guaranteed it's going to be a good, of, of good quality and judged by people who, you know, drink a bit of beer and know a little bit about it, judged by them to be a, a very good example in a style category. It might be not a style that you're particularly fond of, but you, uh, it's, a, it's a quality, a merit thing for me. I don't, I don't, you shouldn't see a bronze medal from a beer that's really ordinary unless when you go out into trade 
what what was sent to the to the judging isn't the same as what's in trade. And I guess it's just the I'm looking at the, the words. What what it means is that it, it it's really a benchmarking exercise. Um, yeah, kind of without without demeaning. It's getting. Uh, um, I, I'm not. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. not meant to be a, 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 a demeaning in any way. No, no so I, I yes, I agree. It's it's it is benchmarking. It's it's reassurance for people that. And especially when you see the same breweries or the same beers winning awards year after year, you know that's a sign of well, it wasn't a one-off. They're uh, that this is a good brewer who consistently puts out good stuff, and they've got a new one out and it hasn't been judged yet. But I'm going to give it a go based on their track record. Um, if you go to GABF um, in Denver and you see the um, some very very familiar faces getting up and getting, uh, you know, winning the most medals. So medium-sized brewery or large-sized brewery awards, because they're really on, they're really on their game, and they're giving their customers what the, you know, value for money. One of the criticisms traditionally of wine awards has been that sometimes it's the boldest examples stand out the most, and that if you've got a flight of fifteen or twenty beers in a category. Um, it's it's the, the the most memorable or the ones with the the, the most distinctive or the sort of biggest um, flavors within that style category are the ones that really leap out. Is that something that happens, or that, that you think that there is risk of it happening in beer competitions? So I haven't never judged wine competition, but I have heard that there is no discussion during wine judging. The judges do the same as us; they score each wine, and then they get to the end and they just give their numbers. I think uh, Pete talked about it before, when we're having that very um, sometimes robust five or six minute conversation about a beer, is that's the difference. And I think that's where you might, what, what's, what's memorable for one person um, gets talked about by the team and they might, it might become less memorable or they might inspire other people to find it memorable. Just from that, Matt, I can tell you from my limited experience of the beer, I've done, I think, uh, about 12 uh, different sessions now, and each of them pretty much with a like a different table captain and a, obviously a different makeup. There's very little chance of, you know, the the most distinctive one getting through on distinctiveness uh, alone. In in a lot of or cases, distinctiveness say, by we, one person. <laughs> or do, yeah, exactly, yeah, um, because you, you'll you'll find that there's um, that discussion will lead to you know uh, debates about the drinkability and um, you know. Uh, beautifully, you know, constructed beers um, where you know the, the ingredients sort of combined um, have an overall pleasant characteristic, etc. Um, a lot of the ones that have you know a big bang of hops at the end just didn't have that malt to kind of um, link it through, and maybe that's the multi-sensory um, you know divisionality of, of beer because there are so many different elements. Um, the ones that that actually bring them all together. Um, neatly in a really well-balanced, well, easy-drinking package are perhaps more likely to get one that just has that big bang of hop at the end. Mm. And, and a lot of these questions um, are really me asking questions that I've been asked over the years and uh, getting them sort of on the record and getting answers from, I, I guess, uh, the man who can influence a lot of the uh, the, the way the peers are judged um, through his role. And that's probably the brings me to the, the biggest question that we're often asked. How do you, in a situation, in a competition, say, as the Australian International Beer Awards, how can a beer like Han Superdry beat a beer like um, Bohemian Pilsner or Dog Bolter, you know, and, and win the trophy for champion lager? Mm. 
So because no, 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 nothing sets social media alight than when you see that yeah. sort of uh, result. Yes. So the trophies, the trophies are, are not based on points. We take all of the gold medals across the tables because the big categories will be judged across several tables. We take all those gold medals, and in some, sometimes there's 12 of them, sometimes there's three, and we taste them off. I uh, try and get people who have from tables, so I don't get any one table, but I go and pick table people off the tables who have sent these beers up, and we just say, uh, you've got, these are all medal-winning beers. Can you just give us your preference? So rank them if there's four of them. Rank them in... Uh, in order so your favorite beer gets three your least favorite beer gets zero and then we just add the numbers so it's about um, a second viewing but with the mentality that this is already a metal beer and I'm just giving it my my personal preference and then if there's uh, you know enough people doing that you statistically get the preferences rather than relying on me to say that beer wins it's not that does that does that mean for example in uh, if Arn Super Dry wins the trophy, that it's a better beer than Bohemian Pilsner? Is that what the market should take it away, that it was the, the, it the means, judges liked it better? It means in the, in, the, in the category against, with all the gold medals side by side, that on the day, the judges preferred that beer over the R beer. So in a blind tasting, uh, it, was, it would, had a higher preference based on the category it was in. So they're not they're not and, going back and, to their guidelines. They're reading the guidelines, but they're really using. It's very subjective now. So the judging the judges are being subjective. This is what I think. Uh, if it's a lager category, uh, this is what this 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 beer is my pre preference over that beer. Now, Warren, we're avoiding the elephant in the room here, and um, this oh, has probably, oh. probably been uh, asked privately many times, but here on Radio Brews News, we'll ask it publicly. How much mm -hmm. money have you been offered by the CEO of, uh, of Little Creatures to step down as the judge so they can finally enter all of their beers <laughs> in the competition? Because people might not realise, but you're basically banned from entering your own beers when you're the, the head judge. So if you, and, and you happen to be the head judge of a, a brewery that happens to make quite a few different beers. And uh, White Rabbit too. Can't, it, can't enter White Rabbit either. Exactly. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, no, uh, look, there's a bit of disgruntledness noise coming out of pe people in line um, about that. But then when we talk about, you know, well, I get to do lots of media and I always put in there that I'm Little Creatures um, head brewer. So, uh, Is it more the, yeah. the boys in the brewery themselves are the ones who, who I guess, don't get to, to um, you know, uh, play in the sandpit with all the other kids? So Sometimes. Um there's also the other side to that where um, if you don't win, so some brewers feel that if they've won in the past and they don't win again, something's wrong, um, you know, and that's well, the, the, the judges are the, the judges are no good or or they, what do they know or my beer always wins. I won three years ago, but now I don't anymore. It's not, it's not like that. It's the market changes and the judges change and it's celebrating diversity of beer. So, if you were a if you were a previous winner and you haven't won for a while, it's it's a nice to say, you could say, well, we can't enter anyway. Yeah, Warren. Um, not only are you the head judge of the Australian International Beer Awards, and, and actually I should say, uh, are you continuing that, or is twenty sixteen your last year? Original agreement with AIBA was uh, three years, which has concluded. I'm 
catching up with RASV this week um, because there there was some talk about maybe doing one more year. Um, I certainly haven't done a handover to whoever the successor is, um, and I certainly need to talk to the business to see if they're okay with me doing another year. But at this stage, it's, I can't say yes or no. But I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the uh, that part of of the judging. Actually, I, I should ask one more time. And maybe it's maybe it's relevant to your job as a little creatures head brewer as well. But the vests. What's the history of uh, your rather resplendent vests? At work. Yes, yes, or work, uh, and uh, every year you've uh, I've seen you at the AIBAs. You've, you've, oh, you've been wearing my, one. My paisley. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I wear a paisley shirt or a Hawaiian shirt every Friday. Uh, I have done so since I spent some a couple of years in Hawaii back in the 90s. Uh, it's a tradition in Hawaii to wear Aloha Fridays, to wear a Hawaiian shirt. Very button-down military community on, on Oahu. And you'll see even the, even the governor, the police commissioner, wears an Aloha shirt on Friday, and it's all about unwinding. Tomorrow's the weekend. Let's start early. Uh, so I've been doing Friday Shirt Day for a, n- a very long time. And uh, so it's just uh, uh, when it comes to the awards dinner, I like to uh, put a bit of Paisley on because uh, ca- I haven't found a Hawaiian print vest yet. So Paisley will do. Fair enough. Now, mate, talking, turning to your role as a head brought, uh, little creatures, tell us a little bit about um, just going back before that how did you get into brewing what was your background and uh you know what what has been your progression to your current job oh uh, have you got have you have we got some time <laughs> yeah we do it's a podcast <laughs> <laughs> i started in a brew pub in melbourne in 1987 um i was working at a large brewery uh, i did science at university at latrobe and i got a job at uh, the old Bouvery street brewery which is opposite the queen vic markets Uh, I was there for one year and a brew pub started in Melbourne called The Loaded Dog. Um, I got a job there because they bought the Auburn Hotel in Hawthorne and they were going to build a second brewery called the G-Bunk. So they needed two brewers. So I started with them and stayed with that company till about 1993. Um, Back then we had the recession we had to have. Um, We lost the business lunch. Um, uh, so really there was not a lot of interest in, in the market for beer. Guys I went to school with used to come into the, to the G-Bung and I'd say, can I buy you a beer? And they'd say, yeah, sure, but not that rubbish you make. Um, so, so just describe the styles that you were making back in 93. Uh, let's see, pale malt with hops, um, probably 25 BU, unfiltered beer, conditioned in the keg, uh, Pride of Ringwood was really, you could get Pride of Ringwood in clusters. And I think Chuck Hahn started selling me Green Bullet from New Zealand by about 1991. Um, there wasn't a lot of hop choices. Uh, I made a stout. Ale or lager? I, I, I strain. I had open fermentation, uh, mm-hmm. open fermenters. I didn't have a filter. Uh, I made a red beer called Ruby. I made a stout called Razorback. I made a wheat beer called Yellow Mongrel, uh, which was about 40% wheat malt. Uh, but all the bittering was around in the in the mid twenties, so it wasn't, uh, and all the alcohols were nothing over five and a half, so really nothing that was going to blow your head off. It was just the market wasn't ready for it. Um, 
so by 1993, I was getting a bit sick of it. And then a guy offered me a job in the Cook Islands running a brewery. And he didn't drink. And he said it was a business. And he wanted someone to come in and turn it around. So I, I left Australia and, and didn't come back till 2001. Um, after the, I was in the Cooks for three or four years. And then I wound up in um, America. Uh, I joined a restaurant chain that had three brew pubs and we expanded that to five brew pubs and I finished up looking after looking after all five and running the biggest store in Arizona uh, and then 2001 we came back my wife and I came back to Australia to have family as you do as you do what, what were the beers you were brewing uh, for, for the brew pub oh the, for the American brew pub yeah uh, so that was um, late 90s so pale ale uh, always with East Kent Golding and um, a Sea Hop, so we use Centennial. Uh, but any that was the that was everyone. Not many people made IPA back then. Everyone made Pale Ale. Uh, in the 90s in America, late 90s in America, you had a Golden Ale, a Red Ale, maybe a Brown Ale, sometimes a Stout, uh, an American style wheat, which is no no clove or banana and a pale ale and depending on what state you're in your pale ale in colorado pale ale was the biggest brand uh but in michigan it was the smallest brand um so re real real infancy days for, for craft but th that was a time of as many opening as closing uh so real consolidation not not what we've got now in the states where 10 are opening for one not doing too well so um there was a big uh the, the market over there has changed a lot, and I see some some parallels with Australia now. I think Australia is catching up on the states with where we're at. When you landed back in Australia in 2001, where did you uh, go to then? Creatures hadn't started. I saw Phil and Janice over uh, at a conference in the states, and they were, all, you know, obviously planning something, but uh, nothing they wanted to talk to me about. Um, so I came back to Australia and. Uh, I got offered a job at Edith Cowan for one year. I got offered a job uh, selling DME equipment and I got a job, a 12-month contract at Forex as a team leader in the lab. So we had, my wife was about six months pregnant, so we I took that job. We moved to Brisbane and uh, that was with Lion and I've been with Lion for 15 years now. Um, but I've obviously had a few jobs with Lion, um, really expanded my technical so I've been a hands-on brew pub brewer for, for, for 14 years and then got the opportunity to really uh, build my technical stuff and brew Heineken and Beck's and um, spend money building breweries. It's been quite a quite a different chapter in my brewing life. You obviously had the science qualifications before you got into brewing. Have you pursued brewing specific qualifications through the IBD yeah. or anyone? Uh in 1989, I did the international course at the what was called the BRF then, or the BRI it is now. Um, that was a six-week course. Um, so I went, I was at the G-Bung and not, nothing much happening. So I went, um, it was £6,000. I borrowed the money and I went over there and um, did that course. And it, it was full on uh, aimed to pass what was then called the, the DME, the diploma. Um, so I did that course and came back to Australia and no one was really interested in that I'd been there or it didn't matter. A friend of mine got a job with 
fosters as they were called and they didn't care about any of the IBD qualifications back in the 90s because we'll show you the way we do it. Um, I think qual qualifications have become more important for some people. Um, I think if you... So there's a bit of a dichotomy for me. When I was in the States, there was two types of brewers. There was the scientific approach and there was the ones who never wanted to make the same beer twice. And my response to the latter has always been, well, that's good as long as your customers are happy to know that that's what you're going to do. So a bit like going to a restaurant, one night it's Italian cuisine and the next night it's you know Indian. As long as your customers know that. And there are breweries now in the States that just make seasonal beers. Uh, and the customers that go there expect the beer to be different. Um, science, for me, I'm, I'm, I believe in science and repeatability because I think most people drinking beer, when they come back to it, they want it to be pretty similar to what they had in the past, um, especially if you're paying you know, upwards of $60 for a carton. Uh, you would like, I think most people would like to know this will, this will vaguely resemble what I had last time. <laughs> And when did you land at uh, Little Creatures? Uh, three, over three and a half years ago now. Um, I was in New Zealand working for Lion um, and uh, Little Creatures and Lion merged and I knew that that was my job. Uh, so I lobbied pretty hard and uh, moved to Geelong and being originally from Melbourne, my family are still in, most of my family is still in Melbourne so um Geelong was pretty easy. Warren, was it a bit of the same old, same old, or when you, you know, getting to start, I guess, you know, like the brew pub concept from scratch, but on a much grander scale, or was it a, a, a big, new and exciting opportunity to, to open Geelong? I was a bit of both, actually. Um, there was parts, there was parts of my brewing role in larger line that I didn't enjoy as much as when I was in a brew pub, but there was parts that of working in a brew pub that you know I really was happy not to see ever again. So, so coming to Creatures was the best of both for me. Um, lots of financial insecurities when you're in a in a small. I mean, I've worked at places where I've had no repair and maintenance budget, nothing. So if something breaks, I'd say, well, how am I supposed to make beer? Oh, you'll you know. You work, work it out. So work with a pump seal that's leaking. Well, that's not the greatest thing for beer quality. But so so there was a lot of things that got rid of a lot of the ordinary things that I, I didn't miss and picked up, retained all of the really good ones um, at being able to buy. I remember one place I couldn't buy imported malt. I wasn't allowed. I had to buy local malt because that was, you know, a buck. And the the other malt was a buck fifty, so you know you can't. So I wasn't able to play or anything. There's a lot of restrictions in working for the owner or or, or a company that small. And how's it been? I guess when Little Creatures uh, arrived in in Geelong, it's fair to say that Geelong had been through um, quite a bit in terms of its um, I guess its social fabric. It had um, mm. had been a long-term home to. Uh, a lot of large industry that sort of you know that the town was 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 almost known for, um, mm. and those that sort of you know packed up shop or were, were planning to pack up shop over the next two or three years, this seemed all of a sudden to be hang on this is how good is this? Someone's actually moving into Geelong rather than announcing that mm. they're they're moving out. From an outsider's point of view, it seems to have really sort of I guess lifted the spirits. Is that fair to say, or have we still got a, yeah, bit, a I, bit of a way to go? Uh, no, I, I think the the description 
you just gave for Geelong have passed was there was pockets of Geelong that were you were describing, but it wasn't all of Geelong, and I think it was a bit of a generalisation. Um, and I, I had the same general view um, because once we opened, we were flooded with people from Geelong, and as I've lived in the area, I've, a lot of people have moved out of Melbourne and are commuting. Um, so Geelong was changing before Creatures got here. I think it was a very good, um, very good timing for Creatures to come here. The canteen, especially, has really be- become quite a place to go to in Geelong. So I don't think we were the cause, but I think we we're there at the right time. And at the moment, I mean, not only have you set up the brewery and then installed the White Rabbit Brewery there, but you, uh, Little Creatures, is going through a, a a fairly massive expansion down there at the moment, isn't it, in its fermentation cellars? Yeah, yes, I hardly take my hard hat off for more than a couple of months and it's back on again. We brought Rabbit, we brought Rabbit from Hillsville last year and we opened in October in Building B. Um, and then... Probably three months ago, we started work here on spending a lot of money expanding our cellar, putting much more fermentation capacity in. Um, we're really limited. Last peak, we're really limited. Um, the brewery was at capacity around fermentation tanks. So the packaging line wasn't running 100%. The brew house wasn't running 100%. So our bottleneck was around fermenter capacity. So we're doing something about that this year in quite a big way so lots of big tanks going in um, we're expanding our warehouse um, so we can do some more weather loading we've got a lot of trucks coming on site so put in a super highway so that the b doubles can get around without having to snake through buildings so, so what sort of percentage increase are we looking at over your know, former production that you, you you've got planned over the next uh, 12 to 18 months so all this production all of this uh, capital will be in place by um October the 1st and usable. So we've currently got 28 brews of fermentation capacity. We're going to 68. So we're, we're adding 40 brews of capacity to the fermentation cellar. So that should really see us t- take our, we're currently at about 13 million litres of production a year. That should take us up to 25 million litres. So we're t- seriously a large brewery now. Um, bright beer as well. Bright beer is currently uh, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve brews of capacity. We're adding another, uh, adding another eight brews of bright beer capacity. So we'll really be able to um, run the glass line a lot more. We run the brew house. Get the, I, I like to say, uh, brew house is a Ferrari that's in second gear. So we'll be able to put the Ferrari. By bright in. beer, you, you don't mean your. Proprietary bright and bright ale, you mean? Oh, sorry, is... bright beer is the term for beer that's... Um, so after yes. fermentation, it's called green beer, and then you, you say it's bright beer, even though pale ale isn't too bright. Uh, so we could call them packaging-ready tanks, if you like. So the residence time in a fermenter is nine days or 10 days, and a bright beer tank should be 24 hours because you're just batching it into the bright tank um, before you put it to the keg line or the glass line. With those sorts of times, it sounds like time is the extra ingredient, but we won't go there. Um, is, is one of the things that's driving uh, the growth of Geelong the fact that uh, Frio is a little bit landlocked at the moment? There, there isn't much capacity to expand the, the, the Frio brewery? Frio is at, at capacity and has been for, for a number of years. Um, before Geelong, um, that meant people on the East Coast missed out on beer. They might have wanted to buy two cartons and they might have wound up with a six pack. Um, so it was just missed sales. Um, and that was 
that they that could have that they could have done a Matilda Bay in in WA and gone and built a big brewery, but all the growth, sorry, significant part of the growth was in the eastern states. So the little creatures guys realised that the growth was over here and they needed to build a sister brewery um, that could feed that growth. Um, WA was a, is a great market and um, creatures can can supply that. And in fact, they make a lot of the smaller brands nationally for us. So IPA and Pilsner is all made in Frio. Um, and the, currently, the Shift Brewer Stash or the Seasonals all come out of Frio as well. So they uh, they can make different brands and we can take up the slack for, for Pale Ale for the Eastern States. With the beers being made on both sides of the continent, how and this goes back to the sensory um, matters we were talking about a little bit earlier, and even the, the consistency. How do you, uh, you know, sort of maintain the consistency of, of of the product from the two different breweries? We did a lot of work. Um, we did a lot of work when we were starting up. Um, there wasn't there wasn't really much of a plan when I came here, and I my previous time in Lion had taught me a lot about we call it emulation, so making sure that a product, products brewed at different sites taste the same. Um, so we did a lot of work, and we still do that work. So the hop recipe for uh, all of the brands gets tweaked depending on what hops we've got coming in from um, the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere harvest. So the brewers, the brewing, the the brewers here keep in contact and we make sure that when Frio makes a change to a hop grist, we do as well. Similarly with malt, we get the malt from the same um, maltings. So we're on the same batch of malt. Um, we taste our beers regularly. Um, Russ and I Russ and I sit down uh, at least once a quarter and blind. That's Russell Gosling, Gosling just yep. for the listeners for, who's the head brewer over at Frio. Yep. And we'll sit down with uh, not just him and I, but there's, half a dozen of us and uh, we'll try the beers blind and we can't we've not been able to pick the difference for several years um, so we it's it's ongoing but we did set a lot of things up early on by you know making sure the hop grists are the same making sure we get the malt from the same maltings any changes we make we we communicate and uh, of course we've got our own internal specifications so if something's not brewed to spec then it's not released so we're not going to see a pale ale out of Geelong that's got 50 BU and 30 out of Fremantle. It just won't be released. Yeah, the, the, the big question on everyone's lips, and it's a question that is uh, sort of, you know, most asked on social media, when did you dumb little creatures down and was it the <laughs> line accountants that made you do it? No, the recipe's the same. It has been for 10 years. <laughs> when you say the same, I mean, obviously, because uh, I think that in the past we've talked about, you know, just the struggle you've had with um, getting hop supply yeah. and, you know, the, the source of the hops and you've now got a bias towards Australian hops, for example. No, is that... no, we... One of the advantages of Lion is uh, uh, we we do have some leverage with the with the hop merchants, so we are able to go forward contracting our hops into the northern hemisphere. Uh, there used to be a spot spot market for hops in the U.S. That's gone. There's so many brewers opening who want to use really hop forward beers, the hop growers just can't keep up. So while while there used to be some hops floating around that you could buy. Now you have to really put a five-year contract out there to ensure you've got supply. And then they plant it for you and then you're guaranteed to get it. 
So we we our raw materials change, but the specification for the beer doesn't change. So the bitterness is the same, the hop flavours are the same. What's and I know you're pulling my leg, but what's changed is the public perception. As other you know, when Little Creatures Pale Ale came out, it was the only only brand that it was the only brand like it, and it it was an epiphany beer for a lot of people. Um, and now there's who have since gone on to drinking IPAs and yeah. if you're drinking an IPA and you go back to Little Creatures as opposed to go from drinking uh, Crownies to drinking Little Creatures there's going to be a, a difference in your palate mm. and, and it's unfortunate that people uh, automatically jump to the negative and say oh well they must have changed it because I haven't changed um, rather than thinking about well I've been on a beer journey now and I've seen some different beers and now and I can still go back and enjoy Pale Ale it might not be what tickles your fancy anymore but it's still a quality brand but no we haven't changed anything i mean you could say the same about sierra nevada how hard is it to combat that perception though or do you just know that that comes with the territory as people go on their beer journey and you constantly target those people who are sort of starting their beer journey and uh, continue to surprise uh, them with the flavors that's that's ash cranston's job He has a job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, tell him you said that. I don't. Uh, I don't lose sleep over over that stuff. Um, there are a lot of people stepping away, stepping on onto a beer journey that, when I started brewing, were not willing to make that journey. Um, they were happy with what the large commercial brewers put out. It was advertised heavily, and they were happy with that. There are still lots of people who who are not that adventurous because sometimes the uh, all of the hype around beers puts them off because they don't understand what the different flavour components are and, and they'll go to a craft beer bar and there's someone carrying on a little bit too much about flavours and aromas that apparently only this person can taste and it can be off-putting for people. Um, so they, they do want to go on a beer journey at their own pace and there's lots of people out there uh, my 83-year-old dad drinks pale ale now, so you know he he didn't grow up on that. Well, he's a little bit biased, though, I guess. <laughs> well, and, and that's where bias can work in your favour as well as against you, I guess. Correct. Oh, Warren, but it, it's I'm really pleased that we've finally been able to catch up. We we have spoken off air a, a number of times over the last couple of years. I'm mm. glad that we've been able to capture some of those conversations in, in, in the podcast. Um, Thank you. And, uh, yeah, so thank you very much for joining us for Radio Brews News, and uh, we'll let you, let, let you get back to uh, keeping that... Uh, yeah, or no, no, putting that heart on. Taste, taste time. Got to go, uh, go clear beer. Bob the Builder. Bob the Builder. No yeah. Get on spot, plumber's crack. Okay, thanks a lot. See ya. <laughs> Have one for us. Good on you, Warren. See you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go, Prof. Mate, that was... I, I just... You know, he's just such a knowledgeable guy. He's been around for such a long time, but he's got no airs and graces. You know, he's... I mean, anyone that wants to hate on little creatures for whatever reason, you, know, you, you listen to his history um, as, as a brewer, um, and he he really does bring that same uh, passion yeah, to what exactly. he's doing. Exactly, passion creatures is the, the word I just had on the tip of my tongue, Matt. So yeah, absolutely mm. spot on. And uh, and for yeah. those you know um, playing brew house bingo, might be interested to know that that um, original brew house that Warren referred to at the at the G Bung Polo Club uh, ended up uh, as Mountain Goat's very first brew house, and from there it went to Riverside, where I where there I believe it still is. 
Actually, Brad Stubbs, um, who's our emeritus, emeritus, Dr. Brett emeritus professor, yeah. Dr. Brett J, who's, who's currently in France at the moment, um, working over there, um, he is something of a boffin um, about a lot of things, but particularly the you know, history of the actual brew houses. Um, you know, when we had the, he was writing about beer way back in the 80s, and we had the flowering of microbreweries or boutique breweries as they were known then. Um, and he, you know, sort of knows the history of a lot of these ones. I think it's very hard to keep up with some of them these days. Um, but uh, yeah, so we might even. It, I think it's a fascinating thing, the just the history of uh, some of the brands that have adopted breweries of yeah, earlier incarnations of breweries. Cam and Dave um, told me the story of you know when they installed the brew house or whatever, and then uh, attached to the back of one of the uh, pieces of stainless. Uh, you know, it was a, a, a little. Um, Instead of graffiti no, saying Warren well, no, was plastic here. sleeve with you know instructions or whatever in it, you know, with some notes there written by and signed by Warren Pawsey. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, so it was it was Warren? Was yeah, it? exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, but a great thank you very much to Warren um, for joining us um, and yeah, you know, yeah, being so willing to discuss so many subjects. Um, now, Prof, Prof's pot shot. All right. Now, I've, I've, I've thought long and hard about this one, and I know this is this particular uh, ad that I'm going to have a crack at here. Uh, is not national. So, Matt, if we can just uh, run the audio now and uh, play a little bit of Club Mix. Bought a beer, thanks. Yeah, sure thing, man. Today, we're pouring a Freldensteiner Etal Fruit Pilsener direct from Bruges. From, from where? It's brewed by the celibate monks at Abbey Klaustein, redolent with camphor, asparagus and mustard seed flavours. <laughs> Sorry. And it's served in a handcrafted porcelain flute from the island of Murano. But, but it, it is a beer, isn't it? Is it? Don't worry, we get you. Join the new Club Mix Rewards Program for all the benefits of belonging. Clubmix.org.au. Okay, there we go, Prof. That, that's Club Mix. And I do have to say, having heard that, it's not national. We don't see uh, Club Mix advertising up here. But since I started Googling that to get the audio to insert into it, my Facebook ads are exclusively Club Mix. So thank you for that. Oh, no, mate, my pleasure. Okay, here's my pot shot. So Club Mix is poking a little bit of harmless fun at, at craft beer, and I, I totally get that. I get that it's a, an ad for a, a very large commercial entity who run businesses which include some very large and very soulless venues that serve beer that don't really care about beer. I get all that. But it's just as bad to be a beer yob as it is to be a beer snob. So let's just, let's just pick this apart. I'll have a pot, thanks, mate. Yeah, sure thing, man. Today we're pouring a Freudensteiner Etel Fruit Pilsner direct from Bruges. Yeah, wanker, hipster, we get it. You know, how about take some of that low-hanging fruit that you've just picked and, and pop it into your fruit pilsner. From where? I'll tell you where, Coco. It's from Bruges. Bruges. It's a fairy tale fucking town, isn't it? It's brewed by celibate monks in Abbey Klaustein. No, it's not. There's no such place. And, and if it is an Abbey beer, then it's probably not brewed by monks at all, but by laymen uh, under the auspices of the abbot and all that sort of thing. And, you know, beers um, that come out of there are, uh, you know, monastic or monastic style beers, um, but they're highly unlikely to be allowed to have a Trappist designation. So therefore, very highly unlikely to be a fruit pilsner. It's redolent with camphor, asparagus and mustard seed flavours. Well, then it's definitely not a fucking fruit pilsner, is it? Is it? And it's served in a handcrafted porcelain flute from the island of Murano. Now, pig's ass it is. Murano's not an island at all. It's a series of islands linked by bridges in the Venetian lagoon. And it has no recorded history of specialty beer glass manufacturer uh, since the time it was settled by the Romans. Um, it's famous for glassmaking, not porcelain. But it is a beer, isn't it? Is it? 
Yes, Coco, it's a beer, but it's not a real beer. It's a made-up, marketing, smart-asses, piss-take of a beer. It's not real. It's like Superfoods Area 51 or man-made global warming. It's been created by people far smarter than you to make you feel better about your boring little mainstream tabloid world. So waddle back to the sports bar for your Titty Girl Friday session, order your Palmer and Pot deal and chuff through half a pack of Winnie Blues and try to beat the booze bus home and remember what your mum said to you when you were 10. You don't make yourself better by making fun of others. And I think Rick from The Young One summed it up best when he said, and the only reason you don't understand our music is because you don't like it. And that's Prof's Pot Shot. There you go, Matt. <sighs> do, you, do you feel better? Do you I feel do. better to have got I that do. off your chest? Fair, I think it's fair to say I didn't miss. <laughs> oh, nice work, mate. And, and look, I uh, wholeheartedly uh, support the... It, it is just as bad to be a beer yob as a beer snob. Um, absolutely on board with that. And look, I do, I do get the purpose of, you know, it's a loyalty program for, uh, you know, people who like drinking in those, those kind of places and, 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 and the feeling of being at home and welcome and we get you and all that sort of stuff. I totally get that. Not an issue with that. But I just, I've always had a thing about you don't make yourself, you don't build yourself up by knocking others down. Absolutely. And uh, fully agree. I'm not saying, um, not saying that craft beer hasn't um, in turn being just as guilty but that's, of, of having... But, but isn't that exactly what craft beer does? You know, physio, you know, physio Yeah, which is why I never refer and... to it as, as such, you know. It's, it, all all yeah. beer is good if it's, you know... I mean, look, Peroni, Nastro Azzurro uh, took out the, um, you know, uh, best uh, trophy for, for best Pilsner. And obviously the judges on the day, not knowing what that beer was, thought this is a really well-crafted example of, of, of that style. Ticked enough boxes to get a gold, and out of that... Uh, the ones that got gold, it, it was the one that was judged uh, trophy worthy. Yep, absolutely. I, I guess you know that that, that club uh, club mix club world or whatever club, club mix. Nob, did you um, say uh, yeah. club bogan <laughs> Ta- targeting a particular um, type of person, and that, that's going to resonate with them. I guess I get a little bit more upset when you see. Uh, ads like the Anheuser-Busch ads, um, which, again, targeting a particular drinker with a particular worldview um, when they brought out the, you know, not-to-be-fussed-over line of commercials, yeah. um, which if, if they made Budweiser and they were doing it purely for their, um, you know, purposes to reinforce how their drinkers feel about their brand, that would be fine. Except you've also got that same company buying craft breweries who make exactly the style of beer that they're taking the piss yeah, out. Oh, look, at the, at the uh, risk of upsetting some of our, uh, our regular and very loyal uh, listeners like Big Kelv, who um, you know may or may not be involved in one way or another in, 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 in industries that are involved in marketing, um, but I think... Advertising, mate. That, that's advertising is different to marketing, Matt, and then branding. <laughs> yes. but let's not open that whole Pandora's box of hornets, worms. We've got... Um, uh, look, I, I think you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So I think if... If, if the big brewery and, and, and has a bush in this instance, if they just come out and say, you know what, it's just beer, don't, you know, we don't need to take it too seriously, I think you'd win a lot more fans than, than I guess, you know, um, you know, sticking out your tongue and, and, and just, you know, being that, that kid, the little smart-ass in the playground. No, and, and I agree. And I just sort of think it, it, it's generally the hypocrisy of things or the, you know, the, the short-sightedness of... Um, those you know, big companies, and, and it, to, to me, that's one of the things that you know I find in, in making the political decision about the beers that I buy. Um, it's not on the quality of the big beers, as you know, Matilda Bay, um, you know, White Rabbit, all of those beers are fantastic beers. But 
all things being equal, I choose to uh, buy uh, from smaller brewers because when you look at the, the big guys, they actually don't stand for the product they're making. They see a business opportunity now and the same company is willing to shit can craft and you know manifest the worst boorishness of beer at the same time. And, and Lion's a great example. You know, the 4X Gold commercials where you've got the four yobs sitting around a barbecue, you know, with the old TV, yeah. you know, plugged or failing in. failing to build um, a boat. Yeah. Or failing to build a boat. Um, and actually, Lion, which is currently running the Beer the Beautiful Truth campaign... You Don't know, start on that. Went, no, 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 but went so far into creating a problem that they're now trying to rectify when... Ten years ago, they ran the, those the, the boobs ad, you know, yeah. with the for the Han Superdry. When they launched Han Superdry, it was all drink this beer because she hates your guts, meaning your 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 beer gut. And you know, they and back then, you know, when I was saying, look, you guys are pandering to the worst perceptions of beer, and the the, the low carb thing is going to move on. And when the tide Walt rolls back, you're going to be left with this perception that you're creating now. And, you know, they and Pure Blonde, exactly the same. And Pure Blonde's still doing it, um, such as the genius of uh, CUB. But at a time when, you know, the healthfulness of beer is being questioned, um, they're still dealing with the perceptions they've created. And, and that, that, to me, like, I love your pot shop, Prof. prof but, yeah, no, I, I just sort of, uh, at, at, at least they're, you know, they're doing something that we hate, but at least they're doing it, you know, in a fairly consistent hey, fashion. Hey, listen, I just their, had a really uh, good idea, Matt. I would love for all of the, the brewers, particularly from from some of the uh, our friends from some of the bigger breweries who who have put out marketing um, and and advertising campaigns in the past. Would the, if the brewer was allowed to, uh, you know, craft the tagline or the concept of the ad? How different would it be to what the marketing department uh, or the uh, you know the the ad guys? The creatives. And I reckon would that would with. be perfect for a Bruin transfer. Wouldn't it? We might, we, 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 we might do leaves? that. We might, uh, just yeah. out of interest, hey, if any, any of the brewers out there, just drop us a line and, and 100% confidentiality. But just if you if you were able to, uh, just the tagline or the, you know, how would you have described or marketed a particular beer, uh, and would it would it have been marketedly different, markedly different to uh, to what the company came up with? Drop us a line. Nice. We'll see with it there. We'll see where we can go with this. That's uh, we we you know the the Gruen transfer where they do that segment you know where they have to sell something really unpopular like yeah. uh, euthanasia yeah, yeah. so uh, <laughs> um, if brewers ran the marketing department what would the ads look like I think that's a great idea yeah so exactly the uh, same beer but how would you have how would you have plugged it there we go over to you nice work Prof um, now just as we head head out I think that's a like a snapping moving along actually we, we didn't do it at the start of the show have you tried any new beers this week Prof anything you want to talk about uh, look just one because obviously Gab's Auckland um, dominated my palate um, and I just have to just throw a, a shout out to uh, the Garage Project for their and, and it was their Gab's beer over over here as well and I do have it here because it's you know, so just so I don't muck it up here um it's the, the marvellous Madame Makash. Um, Garage Project described this as a Persian-inspired um, rose, pashmak, fairy floss and Omani ale. So how can you not try it? Um, 30 kilograms of um, Persian uh, fairy floss, which uh, just beautifully described as, you know, oh, it was going to be so much fun because it looked like, as they were pulling it out of the packaging um, from the specialty food shop, it looked like somebody had shaved a Muppet. He said it was just like this beautiful <laughs> pink stringy sort of hair. 
so they ordered the 30 kilos of it to put into the, and obviously, you know, it's reasonably time critical to, to get it in while the temperature's right and, and everything's all going. Um, the 30 kilograms, now, first of all, Matt, picture how how light fairy floss is. Can you imagine the size of the bale? To get, to get oh, I'm, sure I'm just trying to do the calculations in my head. Yeah, um, but rather than a, a a single 30 kilo bale, it came in um, 200 gram sachets. So he said, yeah, about the first 73, he said, this is really fun. He said after that, it just they, they lost interest pretty quickly. Um, but it was just a, a beautiful story. Their theme this year for Gabs was Freak Show. So they drew on the, the Persian because the, um, the Madame Pakash is, you know, it's the, um, uh, the, the fortune teller. So it's sort of, and just the beautiful story sort of linked through. I think they, they might have some stuff online that you can go and uh, have a look at. But the the beer itself with the the lime, the fairy floss, the rose, it was just insane. It was just beautiful. So that that's my beer for the week. I actually, I, I've got a garage project beer this week as well because, you know, I, I love uh, Joss and the Boys. I love the brewery and I love so much about it. But there, there's just so much hype. And I, I, I don't know, I, I think I've just got an aversion to hype because I hate being disappointed um and and i'm also a little bit distrustful of anything that is hyped because you get the group think um and people stop questioning but i, I grabbed a couple of they're, they're not new beers um from garage project at all one was the pan pacific amber ale and the other was death from above um and but both of them um just absolutely rock solid beers beautifully balanced you know, hops in abundance, but just so beautifully balanced. And uh, yeah, no, so I, I love both of those. And actually the other one, uh, and it turned up yesterday, and I don't think I meant to talk about it because apparently it's embargoed until next Tuesday. Um, but then again, I've already seen pubs advertising that's going on tap this Friday when the podcast comes out. And to me, that seems absolutely ridiculous that the media can't write about something that's going to be in trade. But anyway, um, the Cooper's Vintage Ale is out. Um, it's always a high point of my year. I still... Going back to what we were saying, that if you don't love things, they go away. Yep. Um, and the Cooper's Vintage, a little bit disappointed with their IPA when it came out and some of the others, but the Cooper's Vintage Ale this year is very, very special. Don't expect a hop bomb or anything like that, but if you like a strong ale, um, it is just superb. Beautiful. I look forward so to it. Look forward. Now, mate, before we, uh, b- b- before we go, um, we do have uh, a couple of thank yous. Uh, a couple of patrons have come on. Um, Patreons, patrons, patrons, however you want to call O-T-O-T. it. Uh, Chris, Christo Magala, who is a you know, regular listener of the show and a you know, huge fan of good beer and quite a dab hand at brewing himself. Very much so. Uh, Thanks, although I don't think Chris. he's doing too much brewing at the moment because he uh, broke both of his elbows, arms. Elbows, yeah. yeah. Elbows, the day of gabs. Uh, on, on the on way, way to. Too, yeah, you know, on the way back from oh, the first session. The home. I think it was. Yeah. It was Okay. Um, but, so thank you very much, Chris. And also the Craft Beer Industry Association. Um, has oh, come on board as a. Uh, thanks for that, guys. Rattle. Yeah, thanks, thank Chris, you for that. I, I know that. They you represent, uh, make, represent uh, the executive here. Yes, um, and and a uh, regular listener. So and, and listeners, it's not a piss take. I think we we have had some feed, feedback. Are you guys seriously rattling the tin? And yes, we are. Um, you know, we we do take a little bit of advertising, but. It, um, it, it, no one's making any real money um, or any money at all in Prof's case. So it, it is a chance to buy proper beer um, and also, you know, upgrade the, the the microphones. One of the biggest jumps we've had in audio uh, was when we, in, in listenership, was when we bought Pete a new microphone and, you know, 
just up, up, gradually upgrading the, the technology and uh, things that we can do. So you, you can jump online. Just click the link or go to Patreon, uh, Osbrews News, and uh, yeah, ha- have a shout out. Um, there was no, there were no cards and letters this week, Prof. No iTunes reviews. Um, so apart you just from couldn't the, be asked in, in a new theme music, could you, for the cards and letters? No, no, it wasn't that at all. No, well, I'll, I'll do that just for the. Um, so, but no, there was no, no, no cards. So you can help other people find us if you like us. Um, jump online to iTunes and leave a rating or a review. It doesn't have to be a good one. Um, just let us know what you think. Uh, but you can contact us through all of the uh, various things. And actually tying those two things together, um, Paul Pacey, who um, came on as a as an executive producer um, patron. Yep. Uh, he gets to have uh, 10 minutes with the uh, the brewer of his choice. Now, he's opted not to, but he sent through some interview questions or some questions he would like asked, um, and he wants to catch up with Brad Rogers. Um, he wants to ask a few questions of Brad Rogers, who is a good friend of the show, but we haven't spoken to for quite some time. So uh, we, we might just uh, next week quickly catch up at 10 minutes with uh, Brad Rogers to get the the burning questions that uh, Paul Pacey wants answered. Perfect. I like, that. That's, I like the way that's working. Yeah, and if anyone does want to uh, uh, become a, an executive producer, it's 10 bucks a month, so around about 120 bucks a year, which you know is, is about average for a magazine subscription. We'd like to think that we give you good value. It certainly takes a lot of our time to, to do it for you, and if you enjoy the show and you would miss us, most importantly, if you're gone, remember, if you don't love something, it goes away. That sounds very passive-aggressive, doesn't it, Prof? <laughs> It's it's not a threat, real or implied. Donate now or um, the prof gets it. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, now, prof, before we do go, uh, what were your thoughts about my outro music for last week? My, my oh, Matt, personal in, self-chosen Inspired. I, I, I love the way that, uh, just talking about not taking ourselves too seriously, the, yeah, there, there's a bit of a piss take there. And I should say that our producer, uh, Lockie McIntosh, and myself had a bit of a chat about, you know, slotting in some music on your behalf. And we sort of, you know, how nasty do we get? Or how also, or how true to form do we get? Um, and, you know, Dennis Leary's, you know, I'm an asshole. With, you know, that, that's maybe, you know, perhaps taking... Some of the kids may not be familiar with that. I might just sort of uh, stitch a little, a little bit, bit in. in. So um, we thought about that one, but I thought you choosing the uh, the ugly kid, Joe, um, with the added um, uh, little ironic twist of, of having a little bit of dr- driving guitar music in your theme <laughs> song. Having, having it can. Driving exactly. Guitar music uh, I thought that was really nice. good. So do you, want to, do you want to make that a... Because maybe our, um, maybe, you know, uh, executive producer, because uh, say we get a couple um, or three or four, somebody can choose a guest and somebody can choose some questions and perhaps somebody can um, have the honour of choosing some outro music. Absolutely. Make a suggestion for some outro music. Something that they think is, thinks is apropos to the vibe of the podcast. Because, but, you know, I, 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 I can see why you came at Dennis Leary, um, uh, because, you know, but except that, was then about me as opposed to my theme song, which is about, you know, I shit can everything, yeah. which was where I was going. Um, and hopefully people don't think I'm an asshole, you know. <laughs> I joke about it, but hopefully, you know. Anyway. Move on. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find out based don't on our, what our patrons mate. suggest. <laughs> yeah, yes. Just because you see a beehive doesn't mean you have to hit it. Um, anyway, Prof, uh, now just on, on the outro music, uh, I'm going to sort of throw in something a little bit different. Um, the We have talked about the umpire music and we always chose that because it was lighthearted and a little bit of a piss take. And it, But it's, it summed up the feel of what beer is. Beer is meant to be fun. Beer is not meant to take itself too seriously. Um, and there, there's that element of traditionalism in it. Um, but today I'm just going to go with a bit of a tune that I think 
just sums up that really good feeling that you get when you have a great beer in the right time with the right people and you just feel good about the world, Prof. So, uh, mate, see what you think about this. Great to join you once again. Always love chatting. And, uh, mate, it's looking forward to catching up for our um, 100 asterisk show um, in Brisbane. Done. Look forward to it. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us. Love your work, Prof. Every evening, when all my days work a suit, I call my baby and let's go watch her with you. I met some movies, but she don't seem to be dead. And then she asks me, why do I come through a flat and have some supper? And let the evening pass by, I'm taking records. This has a groovy high five. I say, yeah, yeah. And that's what I say. I say, yeah, yeah. We'll play a melody and turn the light down on so the knock and see. We gotta do that. I like doing these little Easter eggs. It makes me listen right to the end. Are we still recording? I say yeah. Oh, sorry. And we're out.